This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kate Davis. We've got another bonus episode for you today, and to tell us about it is our producer, Josh Christensen. Hi, Josh. Hey, Kate. So what are we looking at today? So in our last episode, as we said before, we're trying to provide context to our main episodes with these bonus ones. So we talked about tone policing and white privilege in the workplace with Mimi Fox Melton, acting CEO of Code 2040. Yeah, and it was a really great conversation. It was about all the ways that bias towards whiteness shows up as kind of the default in our lives, especially at work. And it's something that if you are white, you've maybe never really questioned it, like what your definition of professional, quote unquote, professional is, or who is allowed to get angry or even excited at work. For a lot of white people, I think it's an eye-opening conversation that can be the start of figuring out how to change things that we have taken for granted. Yeah. I keep thinking about one thing she said, which was, you know, we have these kind of events like these catalyst moments over the summer with George Floyd and the the, the protests that followed. And Mimi talked about how you know mostly white people will talk about, well, I need to learn more about about the, the black community or indigenous communities or, or Latinx community. But really, you need to learn about whiteness and how that functions in our world. And that's just stuck with me through this past week. And if listeners do want to listen to that episode, if you haven't already, you should go back after you listen to this episode. Don't turn off this episode, listen to it all the way through, and then go back and listen to our episode with Mimi because she really broke down the issues but left us with some actionable recommendations I think we should all take advantage of. Which is what leads me to our topic today, and that's diversity and racial bias training. Over the past months, countless companies have started or restarted some form of racial bias training. Our company has, and probably most of our listeners' companies have as well. But what is the origin of this type of training for workplaces, and how has it evolved over time? Fast Company reporter Lydia Dishman took a look at the history of these trainings. Yeah, what did they get called for? Because there are two black guys sitting here meeting me? Yes, I didn't Well, what did they do? What did they do? Did someone tell me what they did? They didn't do anything. I saw the entire thing. What did they do? Back in 2018, two black men waiting for a friend to show up were arrested in a Philadelphia Starbucks. The arrests caused immediate public outcry, and as a result, Starbucks shut down every single one of its 8,000 U.S. stores to give 175,000 employees a short course in racial bias training. I'm reminded of this moment because after the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the protests that followed, businesses across the country started setting new DEI goals and holding racial bias training sessions for their employees. One example of the outpour of corporate declarations came from Apple's Tim Cook, who tweeted, justice is how we heal. Some critics dismissed the statements as performative allyship, but many companies did start to make changes within their workforce in an effort to be anti-racist and support their BIPOC employees. 
Despite the recent surge in interest, unconscious bias and diversity training dates back to the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Here's a brief timeline of what got us to the diversity and inclusion initiatives we have in the workplace today. It starts with the Civil Rights Act. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was a landmark civil rights and labor law in the United States. It made it illegal for employers to discriminate based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. This applied to businesses with more than 15 employees, and they couldn't discriminate in hiring, termination, promotion, compensation, job training, or any other term, condition, or privilege of employment. Further supplements to the law also made discrimination on the basis of pregnancy, age, and disability illegal. Sexual harassment and discrimination based on sexual orientation are now both also illegal under Title VII. A number of discrimination suits were filed with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, in the late 1960s and early 1970s. If they or state agencies found probable cause for discrimination, one thing they'd often require was that the organization train all employees in anti-discriminatory behavior. Leaders watching these filings and court-mandated training tried to be proactive to avoid expensive lawsuits, not to mention the negative publicity that could accompany a ruling. So they took it on themselves to train managers and employees. In a paper on the history of diversity training by Rohini Anand and Mary Frances Winters from 2008, they write that most training at this time was, quote, primarily the imparting of knowledge with recitations on the law and company policies, a litany of do's and don'ts, and maybe a couple of case studies for the participants to ponder, end quote. They say that those sessions varied from one hour to a full day, and it could often be a one and done event. After this legislation and the lawsuits that followed, there were several years where we saw a significant uptick in racial and gender diversity in the workplace. But that stalled out in the early 1980s after this happened. Well, the time has come. You've seen the map. We've looked at the figures and NBC News now makes its projection for the presidency. Reagan is our projected winner. Ronald Wilson Reagan of California, a sports announcer, a film actor, a governor of California, is our projected winner at 8.15 Eastern Standard Time. On this election night, we have projected Ronald Reagan the winner. And to add President Ronald to Reagan's deregulation policies led to the decreased focus on compliance to these laws and training. What's more, Reagan appointed Clarence Thomas to lead the EEOC. Thomas was not a fan of agreements that included goals and timetables for increasing representation of underrepresented groups. The result was less of a push to diversify, and training became a line item to reduce as part of cost-cutting efforts in an era where an offshore competition heated up. Back to that paper written by Rohini Anand and Mary Frances Winners, they write that at this point, companies that continued to push diversity training shifted their strategy. They aimed to provide content that would help women and people of color assimilate into existing corporate cultures. Winters and Anand say, quote, based on the assumption that these new corporate entrants were less prepared because they had not yet developed the necessary managerial skills to be effective managers, end quote. In 1987, a book called Workforce 2000 came out, and among its predictions was that our future labor force would include more women and underrepresented populations. 
Many experts use this publication as the impetus for creating and making a business case for the diversity training industry. The late Roosevelt Thomas Jr., who was the executive director of the American Institute for Managing Diversity at Atlanta's Morehouse College, upended the perceptions that affirmative action and compliance training could solve diversity problems at homogenous companies in an article he wrote for the Harvard Business Review in 1990. In it, he suggested a 10-point plan for shifting corporate culture to be more inclusive above and beyond what a single diversity training could achieve. What's more, he tied it to business success. He wrote, there is a simple test to help you spot the diversity programs that are gonna eat up enormous quantities of time and effort. Surprisingly, perhaps, it is the same test you might use to identify the programs and policies that created your problem in the first place. The test consists of one question. Does this program, policy, or principle give special consideration to one group? Will it contribute to everyone's success, or will it only produce an advantage for Blacks or Whites or women or men? Is it designed for them as opposed to us? Whenever the answer is yes, you're not yet on the road to managing diversity. After Roosevelt's paradigm became more widely known in the 1990s, companies embarked on training that ranged from social justice awareness and appreciation of difference, and even work-life balance, sexual orientation, age, and disabilities. Some of this training led to a backlash from white men. One example of this is the historic Supreme Court case of Alan Back, who alleged that he was twice denied admission for medical school because of reverse discrimination. He was eventually granted admission, but the Supreme Court upheld affirmative action. It also led to including the controversial blue eyes, brown eyes experiment in companies' unconscious bias training. You may remember this experiment from a famous Oprah Winfrey episode back in 1992. I'm backstage right now because today's studio audience thinks that they've come to a regular Oprah Winfrey show, but without knowing it, they've walked into this exercise. It's an exercise in racism. And my guest, Jane Elliott, started this exercise a long time ago with her third grade class back in 1968 after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. What she's going to do is to demonstrate how easy it is to learn prejudice. The point being that we are taught to hate each other on the basis of the color of our skins. So today's audience was separated into two groups, not on the color of their skin were they separated when they arrive. They were separated based on the color of their eyes, but they have no idea that they were separated. What we did was- Oprah's audience members are put through a number of different slights or privileges prior to the start of the show, including blue-eyed people asked to wear a green collar. By the time the show starts, the blue-eyed audience members are very upset. school teacher and for 20 years and through her research and experience in the classroom she's discovered some shocking news she says that the news is that blue-eyed people have an inability to achieve and brown-eyed people have higher intelligence welcome jane elliott jane and you you came to that conclusion how I've, I've been a teacher for 25 years in the public, private, and parochial schools in this country, and I have seen what brown-eyed people have done as compared to what blue-eyed people do. And it's perfectly obvious. And if I didn't believe it before this morning, you should have been here this morning when we brought these people in here. 
Eventually, the nature of the exercise is revealed and the comparison is drawn to race and discrimination. Although this remains a powerful exercise, ultimately, as Rohini Anand and Mary Frances Winters wrote in that 2008 paper, diversity training became a check off the box item evaluated not by its effectiveness, but rather by the number of people who were trained. Training has continued to evolve over the past 20 years. Anand and Winters write that contemporary approaches position diversity as a competency. Quote, the assumption is no longer that only certain groups need training, but rather that all employees need to be more cross-culturally competent in an increasingly global world, end quote. Unfortunately, given the continued underrepresentation of women and other marginalized communities in most businesses, as well as the continued harassment and discrimination of underrepresented groups, diversity training and inclusion initiatives still have a place in our corporate culture today. This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you liked this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen.